From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Wesley Stace, and I'm reading from Charles Jessold, considered as a murderer. Charles Jessold is a composer, and our narrator is Leslie Shepard, a musical critic. And they're going looking for folk songs. Jessold refused the map. I have no sense of direction whatsoever, least of all now. The only time I know where my arrow points on the compass is when I'm on a train to or from London, and sometimes not even then. It was fortunate that I had planned the excursion in advance, because in my diminished state, I did not have the mental acuity or inspiration required to blaze a trail. This brought us indecently early to a farm where lived a Dan Mossop, He and his wife were surprised to see the two of us with our knapsacks and notebooks, but most welcoming. From my sack, as if from a hat, I summoned a rabbit, one of two purchased from our gardener. The mossop woman's eyes lit up as she set about transforming that evening's meal into a rabbit and potato pie, while mossop explained that he could spare us but an hour, for he expected company. This grizzled man with furrows etched deep in his face had the infuriating habit of mouthing everything said to him slightly after he had been addressed, but when he sang, he was a wonder. His wife potted about, noisily dicing onion and carrot, occasionally cooing over the rabbit as though it were being repeatedly presented, then begging its pardon before unceremoniously skinning it and throwing it into the pot. She joined in unpredictably with her husband's singing, always in unison. Jessold, his blend of tobacco mingling with the sweet smells of cookery and waste in the kitchen, barely looked up as he wrote. I'd leave all that finicky notation to him if he was so keen on it. Mossop lost himself in singing and would, I believe, have sung all day. I remember a very sprightly bitter withy. It took a staccato bang on the door to bring him to his senses. "'What's time?' he asked his wife. Then with wide eyes, "'Oh, Lord!' In strode a soldierly man with shooting stick, briefcase and toothbrush moustache. Not the type of company one might have predicted for the Mossops, and we were evidently the last people he expected to see. When this intruder revealed an unwieldy phonographic recording device. The ticklishness of the situation was plain. I could guess this man's name without difficulty. It was my nemesis from the letters page. Banter. What have we here, Mossop? It was as though the man was still on the parade ground. His voice, his demeanour, all suited the author of that offensive letter. Mossop, his song gone, looked anxiously at me as if to say, I know my place. You ought to be the one to explain. Ah, my name is Leslie Shepherd. This is my friend Charles Jessold, the composer. Shepherd, Banter said, bristling. My name was the final straw. I really wasn't in the mood for fisticuffs. Apart from the fact that I never was in the mood for fisticuffs, I hadn't slept. On top of that, I had just been rudely awoken from a trance induced by Mossop's keen tenor. Further, I did not deserve the ire of a local bigwig who felt he had a right to something that was, by definition, common property. Shepherd, he repeated, rocking on his heels. There was an impasse that I did not have the wit at that moment to resolve. Mossop came to our rescue. 
gentleman kindly bought us a rabbit, Mr. Banter. A rabbit, the man sniffed. He bought you a rabbit. His tone was one of resignation. The old ways are gone, it said. All the future holds is bribery and corruption. Jessold stood, peeved at the interruption, his teeth gritted insolently around his pipe. Out of respect for the mossops and their humble home, he pointed to the door where he stood in front of Banter, addressing him in level tone without looking at him. Sir, we have not been properly introduced, yet you treat us as though we are intruders. In fact, Mr. Mossop opened the door to us of his own free will. You are the one who walked in without so much as a by your leave. Then out of the blue, he faced Banter eye to eye and asked a good deal more aggressively, What do you say to that? Jessel's behaviour was baffling. He had gone through none of the recognisable stages of brewing anger. He now positioned himself, so Banter had little choice but to square up, and I had a horror that there was to be an actual fight there and then in the Mossop hovel. I should perhaps have been worried about the prospect of my guest losing this bout, yet... I cared only to leave swiftly while we still held the moral high ground. The air of incipient violence had at all costs to be diffused, yet I could plead only to Jessold. Carlo, I whispered, hoping this tone might placate him. I placed a hand on his arm, feeling the minute flexings of his forearm. The moment passed. Banter twitched, stood at ease, and started anew, clearing his throat. <coughs> Sir, my name is Daniel Banter. I have an appointment here with Mr. Mossop at ten o'clock. The time is now that, and some more. I coughed. <coughs> it seems that by unforeseeable coincidence, we have beaten you here. The early bird catches the worm, they do say, said Mrs. Mossop, inhaling the aroma of the simmering rabbit stock. She meant the remark to soothe. Or vice versa growled Banter. My grip on Jessel's arm tightened. Banter was in the wrong, but that didn't bother the man. He deserved a thick lip for that remark alone. My only worry was smuggling Jessel out before he dealt him one. I hurried our goodbyes, sacrificing the mossops to Banter's asperity as the bouquet of our slow-cooking bribe sweetened the room. After such a bright beginning, but then a cruelly truncated morning's work, the afternoon session started badly. Our mood turned black with the sky, and we had to shelter in a copse until the downpour had wrung itself out. One edge of my map became mache where the rain had pummeled it. Possible destination seemed implausibly far in the current climate. Glimpsing blue sky, we peddled off with hope in our hearts, only to be welcomed by another biblical torrent that hounded us from the road. An unexpectedly, fortunately brief assault of hailstones the size of sovereigns left us no choice but to shelter in a ramshackle barn that offered as little cover as an interior could. To our surprise, we found a shepherd also there, wet through, shivering in his white smock as his dog toweled itself on any available hay. The shepherd seemed somewhat abashed, as though our presence had shifted ownership of the space. I can't imagine we looked any more dignified than he, but we did own bikes, and Jessold was wearing a cricket cap that perhaps made us seem like two-thirds of the men in a boat. 
The rain drummed on the roof, and we thought it best to invite the shepherd into conversation, lest acute social anxiety caused him to withdraw and perish. In his peasant cap, with his boundlessly energetic dog, he was a figure from Bruegel, lacking only a tray of pies or a kerchiefed, apple-cheeked wife. He had a soothing voice made for lullaby, and his speech bubbled with unnecessary diphthongs and slaloming elisions. His name was Harold Marsh, but most of the locals called him Romney, for that was where he grazed his sheep. My reflex was to ask if he sang. We were still on the clock, after all, however much of a washout the day proved. Yes, he answered, his father was a regular songbird. We'd be pleased for him to give us one, I said, and he agreed. Jessold and I settled ourselves on a dry bale while the sheepdog played catch with the rain. Marsh removed his cap, out of deference not to us, but to the song he was going to sing. This formality, as though the singer was taking the stage at the Albert Hall, was always deeply affecting. I shall give you, as it fell out upon a day, the ballot of Little Mosgrave and Lady Barnard. What he gave us then was one of the most beautiful things I had ever heard. I must somehow convey how moved we were, both by the song and by its performance, and yet I suppose the progress of this sad story will convey that only too well. We knew that we had stumbled upon something quite extraordinary, quite unknown in English musical circles. This was immediately evident to both of us. Little Musgrave has always been preeminent among the ancient ballads. By 1611, in Beaumont and Fletcher's The Night of the Burning Pestle, it is already proverbial. And some they whistled and some they sung, hey, down, down. And some did loudly say, ever as the Lord Barnet's horn blew, away, Musgrave, away. To scholars, the ballad is known simply as Child 81 after its numerical designation in Francis James Child's monumental collection. The basic story has the tragic pull typical of the big ballad. The Lord is hunting. His lady seduces a young man. A page runs to alert the Lord who returns to confront the lovers in bed. He slays them both. That is all. Most ballads cut to the chase. We often seem to join them in the fifth act of the drama, but in Musgrave we are granted the full tragedy on an epic scale. Variants allow surface changes, including many different names for the protagonists, but the outcome is the same. The lovers are doomed. In one version the men are brothers, in another Musgrave is married. In one story they bribe the page, in another an ally at the hunt tries to warn the lovers by blowing his horn. The deep Matter remains unscathed. He is seduced. They are killed. Balanced against this universal tragic inevitability are the specific personal details that give the ballad its almost supernatural power. A ring, a smile, a broken bridge, a hawk, a page who cannot be bribed. It was not only Marsh's telling of the story that amazed, it was the miracle of the tune previously unknown to me. I assumed Jessold was familiar with it. This was the only way, knowing his stern views on such matters, that I could account for his lack of notation. I was quite wrong. He was so entranced that he forgot to write, forgot even to recharge his pipe. 
Every now and then, Marsh picked out a verse for particular emphasis. This he sang with a different melody entirely, as though these were choruses separate from the rest of the ballad. The specific verses were neither randomly nor numerically determined, rather they were chosen because of their heightened drama. After Lady Barnard's murder, the second melody became something even more wonderful and unpredictable for the climax. Marsh hadn't lost his way, nor was he extemporising. He, or his ancestor, had deemed the typical repetitive melodic structure of folk song too simple to support the weight of his tale. I had never heard anything like it. Time stood still. The rain seemed to stop drumming. Even the dog lay quiet on the ground. This version, which incorporated so many others, prolonged the inevitable conclusion, dwelling on it rather than having done. Thus, it also froze the moment as we watched and listened. At his end, after Barnard's death, Marsh calmly sang the first verse again. The tragedy was doomed to play itself out eternally. Jessold's eyes swam with tears. He gave the little shudder that accompanies unexpected emotion, strode towards Marsh, and clasping him warmly by the arm, shook his hand in congratulations. Now I will break my cardinal rule, Mr Romney Marsh, and have you sing it again. If you would like some moment to recover, fine, but you shall sing it again. In fact, you'll sing it twice for us. Joseph Addison's great words on ballads came to mind. I must only caution the reader not to let the simplicity of style prejudice him against the greatness of thought. Where do you live, Marsh? I asked. The rain had stopped at last. Perhaps we were an obstacle to his duties. Yonder in the cottages outside stone, you find me easy. You have sung us something most beautiful, said Jessold, patting Marsh's back. Can we hope that there are more? Oh, there's nothing so grand, sir. Only what my father taught me. I sings them to the bairns. They're always asleep by the murders. I was first diagnosed in 1925. Initially, I assumed it was bathwater. But no matter how hard I shook my head, banged my ear, or held my nose and blew... I could not produce that welcome, warm dribble. Sloshing and buzzing was only the beginning. Then came a ringing that I assumed would pass like a church bell on a Sunday morning. It did not. Before I knew it, I found myself morbidly sensitive to loud noises. One Guy Fawkes night found me cowering in bed, like a terrified Yorkshire terrier, a pillow wrapped around my head. Something had to be done. A doctor confirmed... Subjective tinnitus, the perception of sound in the human ear in the absence of corresponding external sound. Its evaluation involved a bizarre series of questions to which every answer was yes. Is it difficult to work? Does it make you angry? Followed by a test to diagnose whether I heard, among other possibilities, hissing insects, waves, a musical note, ticking or the sound of angels, and whether this sound was heard on either side of my head, on both sides, or centrally. My sly observation of the doctor's notes noted his scribbled, devastating roar, and next to it the grade, an awfully perfect ten. My tinnitus was deemed debilitating. At first, 
I tried to keep it a secret. Busier than I had ever been, I, I wasn't ready to be put out to pasture, nor did I want to present my new editor with any excuse best to weather the storm. But the symptoms became increasingly dire. Talking to one person was manageable, particularly since I'd discovered an innate ability to read lips, but in a room full, I had to concentrate too hard on comprehension to make meaningful contribution. Much of my life was spent in the concert hall, its clinking bar and chattering lobby. I ceased to be my usual sociable self. This change was noticed. Shouting became intolerable. A random stranger's cough was thunder in my brain and the everyday noises of the city, for example the unanticipated blaring horn of a motor, caused untold distress. For a while, even at the height of summer, I took to wearing earmuffs. I had little choice but to withdraw. My doctor advised what I already knew, that the noise was best masked with constant music of uniform dynamics that might sit companionably beside my own noise rather than compete with it. He suggested the piano sonatas of Ludwig van Beethoven. The irony. Or perhaps my doctor, who claimed to be my regular reader, was being wry. Beethoven is a composer I have always placed at the very bottom of the select first division, ever in peril of relegation. It is his inimical Teutonicism combined with the megalomania of his Romanticism. But his deafness is proverbial. Perhaps beating out even Milton's blindness and Toulouse-Lautrec's dwarfism as the most famous disability in art. Less celebrated is his tinnitus, about which my doctor seemed happy to inform me. My antiquarian impulse sent me scurrying to the composer's letters. Here I found a fellow sufferer whose ears buzzed and rang perpetually, day and night. Surely, if anyone's music could soothe me, it was Beethoven's. So I turned to his sonata, rather as I now find myself gazing on this dismal countryside. Neither is what I want. Both are what I need. I have come to know the sonatas well, and to admire them, particularly in the recordings of Michael Priest. However, regardless of my sympathy for a fellow sufferer, or even the modicum of pleasure I have derived from my intimate knowledge of the cycle, I listen without joy. This is not Beethoven's fault, per se. The music is medicine I'm forced to swallow. It tastes appropriately bitter. It plays purely to the end of masking the gurgling in my head. I am soothed only by reading about music from a trove of books that will one day certainly be gathered into some manner of shepherd memorial library of music, reference only, where a forbidding librarian will tut every minor disturbance and ensure that rare items are shelved far from grubby fingers. I continue to shore up my hibernation with such volumes and there is nothing I anticipate with keener enthusiasm than the arrival of a well-written catalogue in which each second-hand volume is calmly appraised and wittily described. I have been receiving Woodard's for many years, and I trust his judgment as I trust my own. Slightly foxed. Spine somewhat bumped. Prone to wear. Contents little shaken, else very good. A little light soiling. This is precise language, obviating the need for photographic evidence, and furthermore, it calls to mind my own 
current condition. By day, I am sometimes, somewhat, in control of my condition, but at night it is only my demon and I. I cannot use Michael Priest to mask the sound, for the gramophone that plays forever is yet to be invented, and I cannot bear the anxiety of waiting for the needle to lift itself from the record. This causes more tension than the music is worth. My tinnitus causes, and is compounded by, lack of sleep. And nothing puts a man more out of sorts than lack of sleep. The vicious circle is complete when sleep finally comes. I am greeted by nightmares and dark visions. The phenomenon of the phantom limb is accepted in medical science. Tinnitus is the phantom noise, the phantom voice. It whispers in the night, sweet sleep's disturber. Once it was a humming, the wind rattling in the attic, a shortwave radio that couldn't be tuned. But then over time, its sibilant murmur refined itself into a voice, a single voice. Shh. I am a child again, holding a seashell to my ear, a shiny, spiny, pink, nautilus, proud trophy from a day at the seaside. But the voice is not hushing me. It finally becomes a word. A name. My own. Shepherd. Yes, I answer. You know it is I. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.